Today is the last Sunday before Christmas, and that means it's the last Sunday of Advent. And all throughout this Advent series, we have been talking about how Advent is all about waiting and longing, right? It's about longing for our broken world to be made right again. And more than that, it's actually about entering into the waiting that Israel did as they were waiting for their Messiah before Jesus was born. And we need to know the story of Israel or else, Tim talked about it a few weeks ago, we can make Christmas and Advent mean whatever we want it to mean. We call this series A Nation Waits uh, because we think it's really important to be tied into this story. And today I want to introduce us to one more layer of Advent, and I want to invite us in the week before Christmas to sit in this layer, and that is the layer of mystery and wonder. Because the stories that are in Matthew's gospel, that are in Luke's gospel, I mean, they are wild. They are crazy stories. And if we're honest, we've heard them so many times that they've lost their potency and they've lost their meaning. We see nativity scenes, we sing songs every year, we watch the same movies, we read the same verses, and this great mystery of God's incarnation, God coming into humanity, coming into his own world, just becomes something lost in the noise of the season. Maybe we think it's a nice story, a little sentimental, a little kitsch, but it's still nice, like I can get behind it, kind of. One writer sums it beautifully this way, sums it up, he says, the whole Christmas story is strange. Frederick Buechner describes the incarnation as a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. And he concludes, until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. But we have taken the idea as seriously as a child can. The idea of the God-man is not strange or scandalous because it first swam in the milk and butter on the top of our oatmeal decades ago. At that time, many things were strange, though most were more immediately palpable. A God-filled baby in a pile of straw was a pleasant image, but somewhat theoretical compared with the heart-stopping exhilaration of a visit from Santa. The way a thunderstorm ripped the night sky, the rapture of ice cream, How could the distant incarnation compete with those? We grew up with the Jesus story until we outgrew it. The last day we walked out of Sunday school may be the last day we seriously engaged in this faith. So today we're going to read through and look at Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. And what I'm envisioning, what I'm hoping, is kind of like going into museum, a museum and having a tour guide explain a painting to you, right? If you're anything like me, I can walk into a museum and look at a piece of art and be bored by this piece of art that literally blew people's minds for hundreds of years. And I'm like, that's a nice pair, I guess. I'm going to check Twitter. But when I learn about what the artist was doing in this painting, when we learn about the story, the technique, the history, why the artist painted this painting the way he did, it allows us to sit then in front of this painting and really take it in, right? To allow it to wash over us and its beauty and truth to really affect us. And so my hope today is that we would hear these stories in Matthew's gospel with fresh ears and we'd see things that we never noticed before with fresh eyes. That we would get swept up in the breadth and the scope of this story because it is a story that stretches all the way back to the beginning of creation through thousands of years of Israel's history all the way up to us today and into the future. 
And I'm gonna briefly touch on different parts of this story and point out, or do my best at least, to point out some interesting things and to weave the different parts of the Advent series that we've already looked at into it. And my hope is that this would lead us to let the wonder and the mystery of the Christmas story wash over us. We just sang, you know, come all ye faithful, the great line, come and behold him. And that's, that's my hope today, that at the end of this, we would truly behold the infant Christ. And that we'd allow the beauty and the truth of the Christmas story to inf- affect our lives. So open with me to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read the entirety of chapters 1 and 2. I'm going to skim the genealogy because I can't pronounce about half of the names. Uh, and then we'll, we'll read all the way to the end of chapter 2. So Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And skip down to verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Skip once more to verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord again appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were under two years old, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. God, this story is is so mysterious. Why would you choose to enter your world the way that you did? What were you up to? I pray that today as we, we go through the story that Matthew tells, that you would give us clarity to see that this really is a wonder and a mystery, and that you would allow us to maybe for the first time in years to really hear this story and to allow it to affect us to allow its beauty and its truth to impact us deeply. And I pray that in the week leading up to Christmas, that we would sit with this mystery and that you, Jesus, would invite us into dialogue with yourself, that you would speak to us, and that you would meet us. Thank you. Amen. Okay, so Matthew begins this story of God becoming a human being and entering the world with a really long genealogy that's not exactly exciting reading, right? But Matthew is actually doing something very purposeful here. Matthew's gospel is written to the Jewish people in the hopes that they would see, they would come to see that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with them. And so Matthew is actually tying Jesus to the entirety of Israel's story. The first verse in chapter one says the book of the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And that could literally be translated the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Christ, bibliogenesis. So what Matthew does in the very first line of his story is he ties Jesus to Genesis, the very beginning of the story of this world. 
And he also ties Jesus to David, the greatest king that Israel ever had, and Abraham, Israel's patriarch, the person that, G- that God chose to create a nation out of his descendants. And what we see from the very onset is this story is incredibly sweeping in scope, right? It's not just about this time in history, but it's actually about all of history. It's about thousands of years of Israel's history as well. And there are two things that a Jewish reader who is familiar with the stories of the Old Testament would have noticed when reading this genealogy. The first is that Matthew breaks it up into three sets of 14 generations. And no one's really sure why he chose the number 14, but he does do this intentionally. This genealogy in Matthew is actually less concerned with the historical accuracy of getting all the names right, and it's more concerned with making a narrative and theological point. Because if you notice, each of the 14 generations ends with something incredibly important happening. The first set of 14 ends with King David, Israel's most important king. This is the high point in Israel's history. They've never been more powerful, they've never been more influential in the world. The second set of 14 generations ends with the exile to Babylon, when the Babylonian Empire came in, crushed the Jewish people, destroyed Jerusalem, actually destroyed the temple, the presence of God leaves the temple, and they force an entire generation of Jews into slavery in Babylon. This is the absolute low point in Israel's history. What Matthew is doing is he's building anticipation and expectation in the reader. This whole genealogy is actually shaped like a capital N, right? The first leg goes up to the high point. The second leg goes all the way down to the low point in Israel's history. And then the third leg, there's an upward trajectory that ends with what Matthew says is the Messiah, the Christ that they've been waiting for. One writer says this, The implication of this is that at the end of this last batch of 14 generations, the time was ripe for something else to happen, something significant that would be at least as world-changing as the reign of David and the departure into exile in Babylon. So that's the first thing that a Jewish reader would have noticed. The second thing is the inclusion of four women in this genealogy. Matthew includes Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, who's Bathsheba, and Mary, actually, that's five if you count Mary at the very end. And this is where the mystery of the Christmas story, I think, really begins, because it is not normal for women to be included in genealogies at this time. It was a patriarchal society. Women were only included in genealogies if their inclusion added to the purity of the lineage or the dignity of the bloodline. And these four women, they actually do neither of those things. They do the opposite. And so the question is, why, why would Matthew include them? If you were a Jewish reader familiar with the Old Testament, you would ask yourself, why? Why would Matthew put these four women here? And to be honest, a lot of people, a lot of commentators aren't really that sure. There's a couple of, I think, really compelling reasons that I'll, I'll walk us through that a fair number agree on. The first is that Matthew is actually defending Mary and her reputation from questions about her character and suspicions of infidelity. Because when you read the stories of all four women in the Old Testament, which we will in the year of biblical literacy, what becomes clear is that they are Gentiles, they are non-Jews outside of the people of God, and that each of them had a pretty substantial scandal in their life. 
Paula Gooder, who I just quoted, who actually has written a couple amazing books on Advent that I'd highly recommend. Uh, This is from her latest book called Journey to the Manger. She says this, and I think she gets it right here. She says, not only are they women, but each of them is notorious in her own way. Tamar resorted to a dubious subterfuge to trick her father-in-law into having sex with her so that her children could be counted as the children of her dead husband. Think about, that's an insane sentence, right? (laughs) There's a lot happening there. (laughs) Rahab was a prostitute who was willing to betray her city in order to protect the Israelites. Ruth was a Moabite, and she lay down at the feet of Boaz, a phrase that some take to be a euphemism for his genitals, and Bathsheba committed adultery with David. I would personally say that Bathsheba was probably raped by David. I don't think she really had a choice in the matter. When the king comes to you, you can't really say no. But Gooder continues. She says, my own view is that these women are included to defend Mary against any accusation of unworthiness. Like her, they could all be accused of moral failing in one way or another, according to the customs of their day. But despite that, they remain a vital part of the grand story of God's people. Whatever the cultural attitudes that prevail, these women cannot be written out of God's story any more than Mary could. I love the idea of these four standing as defenders of Mary's reputation. I have a mental image of this slightly ragtag bunch of women battered by life and what they had needed to do to survive it, standing shoulder to shoulder, chins lifted high, defiance in their eyes, ready to defend the young Mary from accusations of unworthiness and disrepute. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's so kind. It's so kind of Matthew to do this. The second reason these four women are included is actually more theological. Matthew is reminding the reader of God's incredible love and faithfulness in the face of Israel's brokenness. Each woman in this genealogy understood and had their lives interrupted by the brokenness and evil in the world. Some of them lost husbands and children. Some of them lost multiple husbands. Some were subjected to sexual abuse or violence, and they all made questionable decisions in order to make it in a world where they had little leverage or power. And yet, Matthew goes out of his way to include them in the bloodline of Christ. In fact, the entire genealogy, when you read the names and go back and look at the stories, the entire thing is filled with broken people who have done horrible things and who have done wonderful things. The genealogy is a picture of not just Israel's history, but also of humanity in general, right? We are all capable of incredible love and also incredible hate and evil. And at the end of what one writer calls this calamitous line of people enters the Christ, enters Jesus, reminding both Israel and us today that despite its disastrous past, God is still faithful and God still loves that's what he's doing with the genealogy. I think, I think that's so creative and cool. Matthew then moves on in his story, and he tells the story of Joseph, Jesus' father, being visited by an angel in a dream. And this angel tells him that Mary is pregnant, which is weird enough, but that she's pregnant with the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for for thousands of years. Imagine being Joseph and having this dream. Joseph is a pretty mysterious figure in his own right. We don't really know a lot about him. We know that he was a carpenter, that he was poor, uh, that he was a righteous man who obeys pretty much everything that God commands him to do in both Matthew's stories and Luke's stories where he's mentioned. But beyond that, not much is known about him. He literally doesn't say one word in the Bible. 
In all the stories of Joseph, he doesn't say a word, he just obeys. And then he disappears after the birth narratives and you never see him again. Most scholars think that he died before Jesus started his public ministry, which I think is really interesting because it means that Jesus knew what it was to grieve the loss of a parent and to grieve the loss of a parent probably too soon at a young age. But this angel appears to Joseph and tells him that Mary is still a virgin, that the child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and that he should name the child Jesus, and that he will save his people from their sins. If you notice in this part of the story, there's two titles given to Jesus. Jesus and Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Jesus literally means the Lord saves or God saves, maybe God helps it's a fairly common name at the time. And Emmanuel means God with us. And in giving this title, these two titles to Jesus, but specifically Emmanuel, Matthew is quoting from Isaiah saying, Joseph's dream took place in order to fulfill what God had spoken in Isaiah. Jesus as God with us, Emmanuel, is actually the main theme of the entire gospel of Matthew. It is what he will spend the rest of his gospel explaining and over and over again coming back to that Jesus in some mysterious way is God with Israel, God with us. Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar, says this, Matthew's citation of Isaiah 7:14 at the beginning of his narrative sounds a major keynote for his gospel. Israel's God is now present to his people precisely in the person of Jesus. In order to consider what it means to say of Jesus that he is Emmanuel, and in what sense God is made manifest in him, we must continue on through the story. But notice that at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, the two names, Jesus and Emmanuel, reveal the essentials of the person and the work of Christ, right? Who is he? He is God with us. He is God saves. What does he come to do? To be with and to save. From the very beginning, Matthew has the reader start to think about Jesus in this way. And then he moves on from the story of Joseph seeing an angel in a dream to maybe the strangest part of his birth account, and that's the Magi. These mysterious astrologer, astronomer, sorcerers, honestly, from some place in the east. People don't really know if they're from Persia or Babylon. It's probably one of those two. But they arrive at the court of King Herod, who was the Roman-appointed ruler of Israel-Palestine at the time. And we'll come back to him because he has an important part to play. But they come to him and say, listen, we've been looking at the stars and we want to know where this king of the Jews is. Where is this Messiah that's been born? And we could spend an entire sermon here with the Magi, because they're just so interesting, um, but I, I don't have time, honestly. What's important is that they are the first people in Matthew's gospel to worship Christ. They're the first ones. Matthew 2.11 says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Remember, Matthew has already gone through great pains to tie Jesus' story to the entirety of Israel's. And Israel's history actually begins with God calling Abraham, who was at the time a moon-worshipping nomad, in Genesis 12. And this is what God says to him. It's the very beginning of Israel's history. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Now, Tim walked us through a few weeks ago the entire history of Israel. And Israel was supposed to be this great nation set apart by God to live differently than every other nation around them and on earth so that the people around them would see the way that they were living and interacting with their God and be drawn to and drawn into relationship to their God. And what we see here is Matthew tying the Magi to this initial promise of God to Abraham. The Magi are foreign, Gentile, pagan astrologers from the East, and they're the first people to worship Jesus. They are the all peoples who are blessed in Genesis 12. One commentator says this, by placing the Magi in his Christmas story, as he had the Gentiles in his genealogy, Matthew wishes to say that God surmounts racial and moral barriers to his saving work by calling to the Son those considered most unworthy. The Magi are walking illustrations of God's Catholic grace. I will show love to those who were called unloved, and to those who were called not my people, I will say, you are my people, and they will answer, you are my God." What we see with the Magi is that the scope of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, is not simply for Israel, though it is to them first, but it's actually for everyone. It's for the whole world. And we see another layer of how big this story is, right? Not only does it stretch all the way back through time to the very beginning of history, but it stretches outward from the people of Israel to the entire world, to all peoples. And then, as quickly as the Magi come, they leave, and you never hear from them again. They just kind of peace out. And then Herod enters the story. So after the Magi leave, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream again. Joseph has a lot of dreams with angels. And this angel says that he needs to flee. He needs to take Joseph, or he needs to take Jesus and Mary and flee to Egypt because Herod is going to try to have Jesus killed. And I think it's worth interrupting the flow of how Matthew tells his story to take a look at Herod really quick. Because Herod is, as one writer I read calls him, a fascinating ogre of a historical figure. He was ethnically Arab, he was religiously Jewish, he was culturally Greek, and he was politically Roman. He was a little bit of everything. He was appointed by Rome to rule Israel-Palestine, and as far as figures go in this tiny outpost of the Roman Empire, he actually was really powerful and influential. He went so far as to rebuild the temple that Babylon had destroyed hundreds of years ago in Jerusalem. But despite this outward success and power, he was inwardly paranoid and obsessed with keeping power. He had his wife, who by all accounts he actually really loved. He had her, her whole family, including her two sons, grandparents, mother, and brother murdered because he was afraid that, he, that they would take power from him. Later on, he would have his own son killed in order to stay in power. He protected his kingness at any cost. And what's really interesting when you read through Matthew's account is that Matthew gives this little dig to Herod as the story goes on, because Matthew calls Herod and refers to him as the king up until the point that the Magi worship Jesus. From the point that the Magi fall on their knees and worship Jesus, Herod is simply Herod. All the other times he's mentioned, he's no longer the king. It's almost as if Matthew is commenting that Herod is no longer king. The real king is here. The real king is Christ. And so Joseph is warned by an angel that he needs to flee from Herod. And so he goes, takes Jesus and Mary, and flees to Egypt. 
And this moment in the story, I think, is Jesus at his most exposed and his most vulnerable. At this point, he's either a newborn or a very, very young toddler, on the road fleeing a king who's trying to murder him. He's a refugee in a foreign land with no rights and no relationships. And Matthew ties this part of the story to a quote from Hosea 11 that we read for our call to worship, saying, and so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said again through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Matthew ties Jesus to Israel's story one more time, this time to the most famous story in their history, the story of God rescuing a million people out of slavery in Egypt, the Exodus. And Matthew presents Jesus' time in Israel, in Egypt, excuse me, as a second exodus, another moment in Israel's history where God is going to rescue them and bring them out of exile. This Hosea 11 quote expands on what it means that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Listen to how the rest of the chapter goes in Hosea. We read it earlier, but I want to read it again because I think it's really beautiful. This is what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I, God, who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And they shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. And they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So what does it mean that Jesus is Emmanuel? Why does Matthew quote Hosea? What he's doing is he's saying that in the same way that God was faithful and present and present in the midst of Israel in their exile, despite their rejection of him and their disobedience, that in that same way in Jesus, God is with Israel, the living embodiment of God's faithful love and presence in their midst. And that through Jesus, God is going to call Israel out of exile, forgive their sins as a people, and restore them once again. After this, Jesus and Mary, Joseph are in Egypt. Herod finds out that the Magi have tricked him and not come back to tell him where Jesus was. And he flies into a paranoid rage and sends forces to kill all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. And as a father of a 16-month-old boy, I really can't imagine the horror of this part of the story. 
Matthew reports it pretty matter-of-factly, maybe even coldly, but then he quotes from a chapter in Jeremiah, and he says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, I want to pause for a moment and have us reflect on and think about this great mystery. I think what this part of the story actually says is that Jesus in some way knows what it is to have someone else die in his place. Think about that. Maybe not in an atoning sense like the cross, but one writer says, for Jesus to live now in the story, innocent children must die. And for all to live hereafter, an innocent Jesus must die. Included in the mystery of the incarnation of God becoming man in the person of Jesus is a foreshadow of the mystery of the cross. It's pretty wild. Jumping back into the story, Matthew uses a quote from Jeremiah 31, this beautiful passage about God's coming redemption for Israel. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, who was one of the patriarchs of Israel. God actually changes his name from Jacob to Israel, and Israel's named after him. And Rachel is here presented as the figurative mother of the entire nation as a whole, weeping for the death and destruction that comes from Herod's rage. And yet, in the midst of what I think is the grisliest and maybe the most horrific part of Jesus' birth story, there's still hope. There's a glint and a glimmer of hope. Let me read you from Jeremiah 31, where Matthew's quoting. This is what... Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your own children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. In this chapter, we see God hearing his people's weeping in exile and promising to restore them again in his love. And this is the hope that Matthew actually has in mind when he quotes from Jeremiah. Notice how both the chapter I just read in Jeremiah and this place in Matthew's story reflect perfectly the tension that Ruthie talked about last week, right? Last week, Ruthie talked about how Advent is about lament and pain and suffering and grief, living hand in hand inside of us with hope and expectation and joy. Richard Hayes again says, Herod's murderous acts then function within Matthew's tale as a metaphor for all the history of Israel's grief and exile. Yet even in the dark moment of Rachel's grief, the echo of Jeremiah 31 offers comfort, beckoning God, God's people, to lean forward into the hope of the days that are surely coming when God, in the person of Jesus, will have mercy, bring back the exiles, and write the law on their hearts. 
Matthew remembers and validates the grief of exile and offers hope of God's loving, redemptive presence in the person of this child, Jesus. And he spends the rest of his gospel describing and showing what exactly it looks like when God is among the world. And then Jesus and his family stay in Egypt until Herod dies. Herod dies and they come back from Egypt to Israel. Again, the second Exodus motif is brought up. And Jesus is left to grow up in Nazareth, just a nothing town in the backwoods of the greatest empire the world had ever seen at that point. And Matthew ends his birth accounts here. So what are we to do with this story, right? We just walked through a lot. Why take the time to go through all of this? Well, again, I think it's really important to read these Christmas stories every year and be reminded of how incredible they are. I mean, these are crazy, wild stories. They're equally full of wonder and mystery and the hope of God and intrigue and horror and lament and the grief of human existence. And in Jesus, all of those things live together. In these stories, all of those things live together. And I believe that what we're left with is an invitation to ponder the mysteries of God. God chose to enter Israel's story, humanity's story, the story of his own creation, this world, our story, in order to save it, to bring healing to its brokenness, to restore relationship to him again. And he could have chosen any time, any circumstance, in any way to enter the world. And he chooses to enter Israel's story at a time when they're being ruled by the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen. He could have had his lineage upheld as pure and holy and righteous and connected to only the great figures and heroes of Israel's history in order to prove his credentials as Messiah. Instead, he goes out of his way to have written into his bloodline the names and the memories and the legacies of not just the heroes, but of foreigners, of Gentiles, of women, of the marginalized, of victims, of murderers, of rapists, kings, and cowards. He could have been born the son of a king, where he could have grown up protected and nurtured in the ways of ruling, so that when his moment came to step into power, he would know and he would be ready. Instead, he chooses to be born the son of a poor peasant carpenter who doesn't say much, who's unremarkable aside from his simple obedience to God. He could have been born miraculously to a mother who had experience raising multiple children, who was comfortable in the role of mother, who knew what it was to nurture and raise a child. He could have allowed a mother like that to be conceived with the Holy Spirit. Instead, Jesus is born to a young girl, probably around 14, with no prior knowledge of parenthood, a girl who's suspected of infidelity because who is going to believe that the Spirit of God is conceiving a child miraculously in the womb of a virgin? No one's going to believe that. That's as crazy then as it is now. He could have been born in a quiet, safe circumstance with the best medical help available at the time. He could have lived his early childhood in a place where he would grow up safely until the time came for him to start his ministry. Instead, he's born in a stable, surrounded by the filth of animals, not exactly a sterile environment, and almost immediately becomes a political refugee, fleeing the murderous rage of a paranoid child-killing king. And he's forced to grow up in a land not his own. I mean, that is an incredible story. And it's an incredible mystery as to why God would choose to enter the world in this way. 
From a human perspective, in all honesty, you read that and you just think, God, that is a bad plan. Like, it's borderline stupidity to enter the world the way that he did. And yet, that's the story that the Bible tells. I want us to close our eyes for a moment. And I want us to sit with this story, to actually reflect on what we just heard. The next few days leading up to Christmas, a lot of us are gonna be traveling, we're gonna be going to be with family, maybe avoiding family, staying home by ourselves or with friends. We'll eat fruitcake and gingerbread, we'll pretend to like eggnog, we'll watch movies, open presents by the tree. And as we do all of this, I want us to pause from time to time and to think about and engage with the mystery of God entering the world in the birth of Jesus the way he did. Ask yourself, what does it say about God that he would subject himself to this kind of vulnerability, this kind of danger, and this kind of need? Ponder that the creator God would choose to identify himself with the weakest and most marginalized parts of humanity by becoming a helpless infant born into poverty into a people under the iron rule of a ruthless empire. And Rome was ruthless. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was the peace of the dead. They crushed anyone who opposed them. And into this danger, Jesus is born. Realize how Jesus can relate to the most painful of human experiences because he himself experienced them. Notice the parts of the story that you connect with, that resonate deeply with you. Notice the parts that made you angry or maybe resistant or confused and you have a lot of questions about. And then bring all of this to Jesus and talk to him about it. Interact with him, ask him questions, behold him, thank him, and worship him. In the Christmas story, there's this invitation to worship the parts of God that we often don't worship. We easily worship God for his glory and his power, his might, his holiness, his righteousness, and those are amazing and good things that we should worship him for. But in these stories from Matthew, the Christmas stories, we have a chance to worship him for his vulnerability. To worship him for subjecting himself to the great grief and the great joys of human existence. To worship him for giving his life into the care of a virgin girl. We have a chance to worship him for his willingness to hurt with us and to die for us. There's a beautiful poem by a poet named Ann Riddler, early 20th century poet. It's called Christmas and the Common Birth. And it's long, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but one of the verses I think sums up beautifully the mystery of Christ being born the way he did. And this is what she says. So Christ comes at the iron senseless time, comes to force the glory into frozen veins. His warmth wakes, green life glazed in the pool wakes all calm in crystal trance with the living pains. The Christmas stories are about Jesus entering the story, the history at an iron senseless time. And he comes as Jesus, God saves, and as Emmanuel, God with us. Both of those things live in him. This is who we worship at Advent. This is who we wait for. This is who we sit with in the mystery and the wonder that we've just read. Let's pray.